Good morning. He is a good, good father. Amen? Amen. A reading from the book of 1 John. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When, we left, when they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. But you are not like that, for the Holy One has given you His Spirit, and all of you know the truth. So I am writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life He promised us. I am writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what He teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as He taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ. So when He returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from Him into shame and shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. The Word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those who are visiting, again, a warm welcome. I am Paul Sorensen. I'm the senior pastor here. It's a joy to bring this message today. It's quite the complex passage, is it not? Well, we'll dive into that together, but I'd like to begin with a brief word of prayer. So please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, we pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of today's message is Locked on Jesus, and I'd like to begin by asking everyone this question. With all of the twists and turns in life, have you discovered the secret to not falling down? During this past winter Olympics, I came across a compelling article titled, Why Olympic Figure Skaters Don't Get Dizzy. Why Olympic Figure Skaters Don't Get Dizzy. It's written by journalist Faith Karami, and in it, she shares some incredible discoveries she's made as to how skaters stay upright during their performances. Here's what she wrote and found. Quote, top figure skaters spin at such unbelievably fast speeds, as many as six revolutions per second, that it can make even spectators feel a little woozy. Curious viewers of the Beijing Winter Olympics want to know why. How do figure skaters not get dizzy has been one of the top Google searches over the past week. That is back in February. 
So how do these athletes pull off such head-spinning moves without toppling over? Well, according to American bronze medal figure skater Mira Nagusa, whom the journalist interviewed, quote, I think we have a learned ability against the momentum that hits us while we're spinning. The Olympian would go on to say she's trained herself to recenter her focus over years of practice while still feeling her rotations. Sounds rather intense, but reasonable, right? Yet Miss Karami, who must have been an eight on the Enneagram, she wanted to know more. She wanted a scientific explanation, so she turned to Kathleen Cullen, a professor of biomedical engineering at John Hopkins University, who studies the, big word, vestibular system, the system responsible for our sense of balance and motion. And here's what the professor had to say, quote, there's really a profound fundamental thing that happens in the brain of people like dancers or skaters um, over lots and lots of practices. And that's basically a change in the way the brain is processing information. When you spin around, you're activating the semicircular canals, rotation sensors. They're filled with fluid and they're sensing your rotation. But when you stop, the fluid has inertia and it tends to continue to move. They actually give a false sense of movement. However, what makes skaters and quick twitch athletes so special, the professor would go on to say, is that through years of training, these individuals learn to adapt and ignore the false sense of movement when they've actually stopped spinning. In other words, similar to Nagusa's response, skaters and similar athletes learn to stay centered based on what they know to be true because of all their practice versus what they feel to be true in any given moment. It's pretty compelling, right? Yet here's where the article by Miss Karami gets really good. According to Professor Cullen, skaters and similar athletes do one more thing to maintain their focus or their balance in order to not fall down. Can you guess what it is? Who just said that? Steve's right. These athletes learn to lock on to a fixed reference point or stationary object. Professor Colin would tell the journalists, ballet dancers often whip their head around during each turn to fixate a visual reference. Similarly, at the end of the spin, athletes will fixate their eyes at a specific spot on the wall to provide a fixed reference the professor shared. Now, isn't that interesting? Thus, to keep from falling down, not only do professional skaters and quick twitch athletes train their minds to know what is true despite the constant movement inside of them and around them, but they lock on to something which is stationary for a sense of stability and object permanency. Got it? It's pretty cool, right? Now allow me to ask each one of us this morning this question. Might this approach be true not only for Olympic skaters, but you and me too, especially as we aim to follow Jesus? Might we benefit from training our minds to hold on to the truth no matter what twists and turns come our way? 
And might we profit from locking on to something or someone, something as steady as a rock, as our source of stability and object permanency? It sounds rather biblical, doesn't it? The reason being, it is. This leads us to our big idea from 1 John chapter 2 today. In a world of good versus evil, locking on to Jesus will keep us safe and secure to the very end. In a world of good versus evil, locking on to Jesus will keep us safe and secure to the very end. And we'll unpack this through two points. Point one, be warned. A battle of good versus evil is at hand, actually all around us. In point two, be true, lock on to Jesus. Lock on to Jesus to stay safe and secure to the end. So let's dive in together. Point one, be warned. There's a battle of good versus evil in the world all around us. Beginning with verse 18, we read, Dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. And when they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. Quite the compelling opening verses for today, right? So, Paul, in One Fellowship, why did you choose this particular passage for today? Well, I didn't. Actually, not directly, at least. You see, for those who are new here at our church, we aim to preach to the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. And to that end, we do something called expository preaching, where we look at whole books of the Bible and whole chunks of scripture to see what the Lord would say to us. And it just so happens in our summer sermon series, as we're going through 1 John, who gets the passage about the Antichrist? <laughs> Me. You're welcome. Here's the deal. We're going to hit this head on together. We're not going to skip it. First, today's passage starts with a significant warning. We'll look at that through point one, and then it follows with a powerful promise, which we'll look at through point two. So first, the warning. To begin his commentary on this book, theologian John Stott wrote, the middle and end of the 20th century are an epic of fundamental insecurity. Everything is changing. Nothing is stable. New nations have constantly been coming to birth. New social and political patterns are continually evolving. The very survival of civilization is now in doubt because of the threat of nuclear war. These external insecurities are reflected in the world of the mind and of the spirit. Even the Christian church, who has received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and is charged to proclaim him, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, now often speaks this message softly, shyly, and without conviction. There's a widespread distrust of dogmatism and a pref preference for agnosticism and free thought, he writes. Many church members are filled with uncertainty and confusion. Perhaps you can relate. He goes on, against this backdrop or background, to read the letters of John is to enter into another world altogether. For its marks are assurance, knowledge, confidence, and boldness. 
And then to draw his introduction to a fine point, he writes, the predominant theme of these letters is Christian certainty. Christian certainty. Is there such a thing today? Many doubt it. Yet here's what we do know. If we simply open our eyes, the world is full of darkness. On this, I think we can all agree. We've come to a place, friends, in our history where kids and families are scared to go to a small town parade for fear of being hurt or shot. What happened in Chicago and Highland Park, where my mom and dad are from, last week was heinous. Furthermore, we can't turn on the news anymore without seeing wars or refugees of war looking uprooted, lost, and afraid. It's painful. And even some of you have shared that you hesitate to even go online anymore because of the, all of the gaslighting that's polluted our country's culture. It's revolting. And we could go on and on with our lists, couldn't we? There is darkness, one fellowship, and we feel it. We feel it in our core. In the face of such darkness, returning to our passage, the Apostle John first calls us as believers to wake up. In layman's terms, Jamie, he basically says, church, wake up. Dylan, wake up. Kay, wake up. Paul, wake up. There is, in fact, a battle between good and evil vying for your soul. And to get our attention, John uses a couple of key words and phrases that really pack a punch and need defining. So let's do that real quick. First, he says, dear children, the last hour's here. What does this mean, the last hour is here? Well, from a biblical perspective, it refers to the period, listen, of history between Jesus' first coming, when Jesus came to defeat sin and death and Satan, and bring salvation to the whole world in an outpouring of his spirit to all peoples from that first time to when he will come again, as scripture says, to judge the living and the dead. It's referring to that period. And just to be clear, this phrase, the last hours, meant not to be read literally, but theologically. So next we need to ask, well, why does he use it? Well, John uses this phrase, as do other biblical writers with similar language like the last days or the last times, as we see in Micah, Joel, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and on and on we read from the biblical writers, they use this phrase to warn us that this period of, of history in which we're living will consist of even greater evil as the message of Jesus spreads around the earth. In other words, Butch, he's saying expect danger. Don't be surprised by the darkness, church. There's a battle at hand. And that's when he issues this warning. Starting with the second half of verse 18 and then jumping to verse 20, we read, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. And then skipping down, so I am writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. 
Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Strong words. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either, but anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. To quote Kaiser Sose from the movie The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. And such is what John wants to awaken us to. Evil is real. The Antichrist is real, John says. And with that backdrop, John goes on to write that our greatest threat is not going to be from some scary goon with red eyes and a pitchfork. That's Hollywood kind of stuff. No, our greatest threat, according to John, is going to be from people in the church or who have left the church, who have now walked away from the very foundational belief of the church that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Let me repeat that. Our greatest threat, according to John, is going to be from people in the church who have left the church, who have now walked away from the very core belief that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. There, John says, lies the real danger. There, John writes, is where the Antichrist likes to sow his seeds of doubt. And believe it or not, friends, this is happening in our world all the time now. Many of you know my wife and I, our family moved down from New England. I can't tell you how many sermons I actually heard in New England where Jesus' name was never mentioned. That's interesting, right? And I've been around multiple Christian leaders actually in Charleston and beyond who've actually started their prayers with these words, to the God of many faiths and names, implying that religious plurality is acceptable to the Lord. Friends, listen. John and the other biblical writers would make one thing clear for us today, and it is the main thing. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God who came to redeem you and me. And on this truth, they'd say we can stand with absolute certainty. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, Peter told the religious leaders in Acts chapter four. Thus, from a biblical perspective, the certainty and exclusivity of Jesus cannot be cast aside for it is the very bedrock of the Christian faith. When this truth is cast aside, listen, it means the evil one is somehow having his way. And John says, church, Paul, may we be warned, there is a battle of good versus evil at hand in our world, and it all hinges on Jesus. This leads us to point two. Be true. Lock on to Jesus to stay safe and secure to the very end. All right. Before we continue, I just want all of us to take a deep breath. I'm serious. I can't tell you how hard it was to prepare for this week's sermon, but I want to tr stay true to God and his word. So thanks for sticking with me. 
The next thing I'd like to share is a story, an uplifting story. Ten days ago, my wife left with a team from our church to serve in two little villages in the bush of Africa. And now Leslie, one of our team leaders, told me, Paul, listen, there's the end of the earth, and then there's this place. She said it's so remote, and if you haven't seen the pictures on our Instagram or Facebook feed, please go check it out. They're doing amazing work. Well, before Carly left, do you know what she did? She woke up at 4 a.m. in the morning and created 12 gift bags with notes and treats for our family for each day she'd be gone. Isn't that kind and thoughtful? Here's a picture of her work. The first note she left explaining her gift bags read, Good morning, beautiful family. I'm on my way to Kenya. I will miss you terribly. While I'm away, I've left you a note and treat for each day. Please enjoy the treat and pray for me each day until I return. I love you all so, 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 so much. Seven so's. Love, mom. Again, what thoughtfulness and kindness, right? To quote Blaze, our middle child, mom's the best. As I sat there reading Carly's note that first morning and looking at all the gifts and notes she left, I couldn't help but think of the gospel. And I couldn't help but think of all of the gifts Jesus has left you and me. Turning back to our passage, there are three gifts that are mentioned to keep us locked on to Jesus' love. And what are those three gifts? Number one, the gift of his word. Number two, the gift of his spirit. And number three, the gift of his church. We're going to check these out briefly for the sake of our time. First, we read in verses 24 and 25, So you must remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the, excuse me, with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. And I especially love how the message puts it. Quote, stay with what you've heard from the beginning, the original message. Let it sink into your life. If what you heard from the beginning lives deeply in you, you will live deeply in both the Son and the Father. Look, friends, I know a lot of us like the latest fashion and song or book, but John's call here for us is to be a bit different. He wants us to be old school. Remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. In other words, our call is to be people of the word where, as the Apostle Paul would later write, all the promises of God find their yes in him, meaning Jesus. And so while fads and thought systems will come and go, friends, listen, the word of the Lord will never fail you. Stay with what you've heard from the beginning, the original message. Let it sink deeply into your life. John says, God's word, that's gift number one. Gift number two is the Holy Spirit. Returning to our passage, beginning at verse 26, I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you've received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't need to 
have anyone teach you what's true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Now I need to confess something or out myself with something. In the early 2000s, I was a seminary student at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. I was elated that I had the opportunity to go pursue my MDiv and another MA. That's where I met these two rascals, Jim and Kathy. We were classmates over 20 years ago at RTS. Well, listen, I remember being in one of the break rooms between classes and sharing with a classmate, I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I just want to soak everything up like a sponge. And the classmate looked at me and turned his head sideways and he says, a sponge. I think we're called to be more like a filter led by the Holy Spirit. You know what? He was right. All the followers of Jesus are not only given the objective truth of his word, but we're also led by the subjective truth of his spirit. That is, it's our responsibility to pray and act and love as he, the spirit, guides us. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance of all I've said to you. Now, to be clear, never does being led by the Spirit mean leaving the Word of God, pushing that aside. If that were the case, we'd be led by an opposing spirit or the Antichrist himself. Furthermore, when John says, you don't need anyone to teach you what's true, he's not saying that in order for us not to listen to preachers, teachers, or brothers and sisters abiding in the word, he's addressing a contextual problem in that day where people had left the church and were still trying to speak back into the church these new truths about Jesus. And he said, that's falsehood. So we have the gift of his word, the gift of his spirit. And what's third? We have each other. We have gospel community. We have the church. We have God's family. Verse 28 reads, And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Note here that Jesus uses plural, not singular language, as he does throughout the whole book. He uses plural language. In other words, as we spin and twist, not as professional skaters, Andy, but as ordinary people, as we do our dance day in, day out, hitting this transition here, this difficulty here, this broken relationship here, or this crushed dream here. Listen, Frank, we don't have to do it alone. We'll be able to do it together, locked on the same love. In fact, Mama Kurtz in the back, it's good to see you been battling some stuff. You came in, gave me a hug, said, thank you for your prayers. It's our joy because you're part of this family, even from afar. We don't have to do it alone. In the words of the late Mother Teresa, what I can do, you cannot. What you can do, I cannot. But together we can do something beautiful for God. And once we see that, friends, and accept that and embrace that for all it's worth, it changes Everything. Listen, Kathy becomes a mother figure or grandmother figure to you. 
Pastor Jim becomes a father or a father, a grandfather figure to you and to your family. Shauna becomes a sister to you. Garth becomes a brother to you. Luna becomes a daughter to you. It changes everything. Isn't that beautiful? You know what else it is? It's powerful. Three gifts, his word, his spirit, and his family that the Lord has given to us to stay locked on his love and safe and secure to the very end. So as we wrap up, church, be warned. A battle of good versus evil is at hand. We need not be naive of this, and we don't need to be afraid of this either. Hold fast to the very foundational truth of the Bible that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God, the cornerstone, which we'll sing about in just a minute, who came to redeem you and me. And next, be true. Lock on to Jesus. Lock on to him. Just as an athlete would wake up early and train themselves around what they know to be true, abide in the gifts that the Lord has given me and you. He's given us his word. Delight in it. Honest assessment. Do you delight in God's word on a daily basis? If not, why don't you start now? Why don't you start today? If you do not have a way of knowing how to navigate God's word, would you see me after the service or see Pastor Drew or Cody or Jim? Ooh, we'll give you a reading plan. Delight in his word. He's given up his spirit. Listen to the spirit. It's a lot of voices vying for your attention. Who will you listen to today and in the coming weeks? And he's given us his family. Flourish in it. After the last service, we, we've had this family move here from Southern California. They've popped in and out. They, they tend to kind of leave early. And I caught them. I caught them. <laughs> and you know what? They didn't leave for like another 30 minutes. The Paget circled up with them. The Hubler circled up with them. The Hiles circled up with them. Um, the Oberly circled up with them. People come to church for a variety of reasons, but they stay for one, friendship. We're not only called to God, we're called to one another. Let us fight with you and for you and for your family. In a world of good versus evil, locking onto Jesus will keep us safe and secure to the very end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this warning and this promise. You warn us because you love us. We don't need to walk in fear. We don't have to live in fear. We're secure in you. So may we walk in that security. May we abide in the gifts you've given us. Help us to fall in love with your word. Be guided by your spirit. And groan in serving together with your family. We pray all this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.